Van Sant's disdains narrative. He got away with drugstore cowboy because its band of drugged out dodos were engaged in a petty crime spree that almost passed for a plot. But my own private Idaho is a different story, a rather non-story. Great blurb Cody picked out there from Richard Schickel of Time Magazine. He's talking about my own private Idaho. That's one of the old movies we're reviewing this week. In addition to Bo Trevi, once again, my buddy John LeBoy gave me all these DVDs. I finally worked through all of these. So a couple of those old movies I wanted to watch. And our new this week isn't a new film, but it is an author of a new book. Nat Segaloff is his name. The book is called The Exorcist Legacy and it is available July 25th. So next Tuesday in bookstores. If you love the movie The Exorcist, you will love the book. The 50th anniversary of that movie is December 26th of 1973. So well timed to that. Stories of Ellen Burstyn and of course Billy Friedkin, Max von Sydow. Uh, Nat was really a lot of fun and you'll, you'll enjoy the interview coming up. Of course, they're calling it now, I think it's uh, Boppenheimer, something like that. The combination of Barbie and Oppenheimer coming out this week. So, of course, I'll have reviews of both those movies next week. But it's, it's fascinating. People are discussing, you know, at a time where in some ways the film industry is challenged. And we'll get to the actor strike in just a second. But, you know, people say there's nothing good to see. What am I going to go watch? You've got two big tentpole movies, a Christopher Nolan film, Oppenheimer, three hours long, available in IMAX and 70 millimeter which is certainly going to get a ton of Oscar nominations. It feels like a really good bounce back after Tenet. The other day I was with a guy at work. He was like, oh, man, Christopher Nolan can't make a bad movie. I'm like, what's your excuse for Tenet? That movie stunk. So it's hopefully a good bounce back from Tenet. And of course, I know he's a great director. I love Memento, Dunkirk, Inception, Dark Knight, all the rest of it. So you got a Nolan movie, which is always an event unto itself. But then you got Barbie. I mean, this, this is built for that IP audience. And you've got women watching it, young women, older women, couples, Ryan Gosling fans, Margot Robbie fans, Greta Gerwig fans. So it's amazing. They put both these movies head to head. And I, I don't know if I've already done this on Cinephile, but somebody asked me, you know, why is that happening? Why wouldn't they separate it? So Christopher Nolan was with Warner Brothers for years. Well, he was upset with Warner Brothers because of the, the day and date release. Basically, during COVID, you could watch the movie in theaters or watch it immediately streaming. He said, that's obviously killing movie theaters. The hell with you guys. So now this new movie, I believe, is Universal, and Barbie is from Warner Brothers. So Oppenheimer is already announced as a July 21st release date. And to kind of stick it to Nolan, Barbie's like, all right, we'll put ourselves there too. Now, there's being a lot made of this head-to-head -head showdown. I'd be shocked if Barbie doesn't blow Oppenheimer out of the water. Now, I, again, I will be going to see Oppenheimer first, and I can't wait to see it. But I will see Barbie as well. And these are two big-time movies. But Barbie's got just, just a... I mean, again, when you're... Barbie, for God's sakes, when you're a toy, when you're, you you have this massive capital versus a three-hour film about a guy who made the atomic bomb, like it's not exactly an uplifting movie from Christopher Nolan. He'll do well with critics, et cetera. Maybe Barbie will as well. But I'm just amused that people are going, hey, what are you going to go see first? Barbie or Oppenheimer, this head-to-head. -head. I'm like, well, I think if you're looking at dollars, I don't see how Barbie doesn't win, but I believe the better movie is going to be Oppenheimer. But I'll watch both and I'll have reviews of both movies next week here in Cinephile. Is there any way that Barbie's like a great movie? So originally, I was like, it's going to be either one or either. It's going to be a great movie. It's going to be funny and subversive and quirky and silly, or it's just going to be a train wreck. Now, I watched the trailer and I said, well, at the very least, like a Wes Anderson movie, it does have very unique visual look to it, right? All the pink and different colors and pastels and such. But to say, as you point out, could it be a great movie? I mean, I'm skeptical. I'm hoping it's going to be entertaining and funny and loose. At the very least, Greta Gerwig is involved. She's a great director. I believe Noah Baumbach, her husband, also worked on the script. So that does give me a, a little bit of confidence. Are they real people? Yeah, yeah, real people. Maybe I should watch. Yeah, go watch the trailer. Watch the trailer right now. It's as if Barbie was a real person. Correct. Okay. Yeah, watch. I'm not buying this. I mean, Before, I'm going to watch it right now. I'm going to yeah, watch, watch it. The trailer while I'm, I'm just talking telling you. Yeah, yeah. I'm on to this movie. I'm on to it. I'm not buying it. <laughs> I mean, Greta Gerwig did Lady Bird, which we know Jessica loves a lot on the show. Uh, Little Women, I think, was a good movie. Frances Ha. 
for all you indie people, white noise was terrible, but I mean, everyone's got a, you know, a knock or two, but yeah, go watch the trailer right now. Get back to me in two minutes. The budget's insane. I think the budget's $145 million, but again, I don't know how this movie doesn't make a ton of money. Whether or not it's a great movie, as you point out, that remains to be seen. But all right, I'm literally watching it, so stop talking. All right, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm going to keep you going. Okay, you keep you watch. I'll give you two minutes. I'll keep going. Boppenheimer once again this week, and uh, I'll be reviewing Barbie and Oppenheimer next week. So we were very excited. If you listened to the episode last week, I mentioned Pam Greer, Jackie Brown, Black Exploitation '70s Queen. We're supposed to record it Friday morning, Thursday night. We get the confirmation. And the Laura Brandt, our expert booker, says, unfortunately, bad news, she passed. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is it? And she said, it's it's the SAG strike. I'm like, oh, the moment we have all been dreading, the writer strike has already been taking place, impacting friends and family and all those writers out there. And the rumors have been, hey, the actors are going to join soon, too. And once Pam just said, I guess she talked to her maybe representative or union delegate with SAG and said, uh, we're going to have to pass. So this is definitely bleak times right now for Cinephile because not only could we have a lot of content impacted next year, but naturally actors are not going to be anywhere promoting their movies. So the good news is for the next six months, there's tons of content here in the can. Scorsese's Killers of the Fire Moon will be coming out in October. I will see it five times. But we're not going to have like, you know, the production designer here coming on the podcast to talk about the movie. Maybe we actually don't. Maybe the production designer. We're definitely not getting any actors. We're not getting any writers. And Rami Yusuf had said this before on Mark Maron's pod. He's like, you know, I'll do one more appearance, but I'm supporting the writers. I don't want to be out there publicly. So it's kind of bleak. I read Brian Cox this morning saying this thing's going to last at least six months. It's going to the end of the year. Some people say maybe the Oscars next year could be impacted. It's a whole issue of AI. And again, I, I, I'm with the actors on this. I, one of the stories I read said that the studios were trying to say, you know, we'll pay a hundred bucks as a background extra, and then we can use that face wherever we want. And, and, Everyone who would hear that, and that's not fair. Like, you got to get paid every time your face shows. That's the whole point of residuals. And it's basically just they're just trying to be as cheap as possible and say, no, we'll just use you and replicate you as much as you want and AI and all these other forms of, of saving money. And of course, a lot of these companies have lost money. You know, these Netflixes have spent so much money on streaming and so much money on content that they're looking to curb costs a little bit. So anytime you can save money, you want to. And I totally understand that. But I, I completely understand where the actors are coming from. You know, it's easy to point out the really successful actors, but a lot of actors are grinding. I mean, a lot of actors are unemployed waiters working in Hollywood. As the great Keith Oberman was pointing out, this will impact Los Angeles. He's like, if you ever lived in L.A., that's a factory town. Let's say 18 out of 100 are actors. I think that's what the numbers suggest. Well, what about the tailors who make the clothing for the actors? What about the chefs who work the crews for the actors? What about craft services? What about the teamsters? What about the drivers? So if all of a sudden there's an actor strike and everything shuts down, and this, this could be calamitous for the economy in Los Angeles for the next six months. So let's try to stay positive and say things will get resolved sooner rather than later. But I am a pessimistic. And again, from a content perspective here in Cinefile, we're going to have all these movies coming up the next six months. We're going to be fine as far as things to talk about, new movies, old movies. But as far as guests, as far as actors, uh, I wouldn't expect we're going to be getting uh, the likes of Jeremy Strong or A. Romano coming on anytime soon. This movie's going to stink. Uh, by the way, I did that for two and a half minutes. I knew Cody wasn't listening. I was like, I'm just going to talk. Hopefully someone's listening. It's just to buy time for Cody to watch a trailer. That's your oh, reaction. It, it was the part in the trailer where she's like, my heels are on the ground. This is not going to be good. Not going to be good. I, like I said, it's, either be, it's go big or go home. It could be train wreck bad. I mean, it's so entertaining. but It's not going to be funny. Maybe it's just not my demo, but I don't know. I'm skeptical. Cody is skeptical. I mean, to be clear, I, I wouldn't go see it on my own. I'm going to take my wife to go see it. She wants to see Barbie fine. So I'm, it may not be my demo either, but Greta Gerwig, I have confidence. And hopefully Margot Robbie and the great Ryan Gosling can bring it. All right. That's my thoughts on the actor strike. Hopefully it uh, it goes quicker than I than I worry about. Thanks, as always, to everyone's reactions on the Emmy nominations. 
just 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 so much love there for some of these shows the emmys like to go through i mean that's the other thing too are the emmys even gonna happen i don't know maybe i, mean, I, I can't imagine that happening no way the emmys supposed to be in september but why would the actors show up and support movies it's going to be helping the studios etc so this could get bloody messy there's no question about it let's stay positive though let's get really dark and dirty let's talk to our special guest nat segaloff the exorcist legacy july 25th this is my dog, Louie. Louie the Wonder Dog is a is down here. Like a three-year-old when his mother's on the phone, now he wants me. So, okay. <laughs> well, good morning anyway, or afternoon. No, it's still morning for you, so, okay. It is, it is. Louie, go make coffee. Go ahead. So, hi. Hi. Here we go, Nat. Let's knock it out. No problem. Okay. Thank you for the intro. And thanks for the book. Here we go. All right. A real pleasure bringing in what we do here on Cinephile. We love authors. It's all about our love of the written word. And this guy's written a sensational book, Nat Segaloff. The book is called The Exorcist Legacy. It's available in bookstores July 25th. It's a fascinating, quirky, hilarious behind the scenes and cultural history of The Exorcist that is timed the 50th anniversary of the film. December 1973 is when it came out. Take us back. I mean, you were a publicist on this movie. So did you have any idea that this movie would be such a huge success all these years later no one had any idea the exorcist was going to blow the top off of hollywood but i must tell you i was involved with the film from the day before because one of our critics in boston i was a press agent for the boston theater chain showing the exorcist had asked billy friedkin if he would allow a day before screening so the weekly papers those that of course played to the youth market could get in print and meet the deadline so we had a screening the day before opening now, if you do your calendar research, you'll know the day before December 26th is December 25th. So you can imagine how much fun it was hosting a Christmas Day screening of The Exorcist. <laughs> but the critics, ironically, the critics had no problem leaving their families on Christmas morning to come and see it, <laughs> so, which, which I think sets the stage. But no, no one had any idea. We did not know we were supposed to throw up. Well, yeah, and there's, there's lots of insanity within the movie. And of course, the stories behind the scenes with your book details. Uh, let's get to Billy Friedkin specifically. I mean, he's obviously an incredible director, and the French Connection and the Exorcist speak for themselves. You know, source heard into as well as you would have liked. But there's also stories from the book, and, 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 you know, whether it's fact or fiction, of him slapping the priest. So let's get to that. How physically abusive was he towards his cast? Uh, not physically abusive. He had to get a slap onto Father O'Malley because O'Malley was not a trained actor. You know, he had a day job and he had to get into a certain level of emotion. And it was in the wee hours of the morning. They were freezing their pills off in Georgetown, Washington. And he had to simply get up to performers and he wasn't able to give last rites to his friend. So Billy said, Bill, uh, the priest is uh, William O'Malley. Bill, do you trust me? And Father O'Malley said, yes, I do. And Billy said, roll camera, and then hauled off and slugged the priest in the face, which got him to tears and got him to recite the words as it was. But other than that, you know, good directors, good directors don't have to abuse actors. What they do is they set the stage so that the actors can perform as the character would. The only other thing that Friedkin did allegedly was he would keep a handgun around and fire it now and then to get a reaction from the performers. In fact, it got to the point where Max von Sydow, who plays Father Merritt in the film, would stroll onto the set in the morning with his tea, and he turned to the director of photography, Owen Roisman, and say, Owen, where did Billy hide the handguns today? So they were all ready for it. <laughs> okay, that's but great so far. But, but Billy is not an abusive director. There's never been an injury on his set that I know of, and he's very concerned about safety and things like that. Yeah, it's listen, sometimes, you know, when, when the facts meet the legend, you don't really know which one to believe or not. But there's no question he had a vision for this movie and he was passionate about the movie. And again, looking at the source material, how much different was it from Blatty's novel to what we ended up seeing on the screen? 
It's very close to Blatty's novel, and in fact, that was one of the problems originally, because when Blatty turned in his first draft script, it was all full of flashbacks, flash-forwards, inward thoughts, and very, very, quote, cinematic, unquote. And Friedkin, who had loved the book and wanted very much to direct the movie, gave the script back to William Peter Blatty and said, I want you to write the script based on your book, which he did, and of course won the Oscar. Yeah, and just to further the point as far as what how close it was to the book and what difference it was, I mean... Again, this is that era of the 70s directors now where it was fascinating because they had so much carte blanche, right? Whether it was Scorsese or Spielberg or Coppola or Peter Bogdanovich, like these directors really had that kind of say so. And I think in many ways, you miss that era of filmmaking. Whatever Billy Freakin said on set was going to happen. He had the backing of the studio. He was a guy who had a lot of juice, right? He had a lot of juice because he just won the Oscar for the French Connection. And of course, in that case, Warner Brothers wanted very much to be in the William Friedkin business. But the film kept on going over budget, not because anybody was dilly-dallying, but because the technical devices that they set up to make the possession look real simply had never been done before. Between William Friedkin and the special makeup effect artist Dick Smith and the special device artist Marcel Verkutter, uh they'd never made a bed float before. They'd never made uh, any any person float on screen because you got to remember the exorcist was done without any optical effects there was right. no cgi everything that happens in the film actually happened for reasons other than possession of course <laughs> but it actually happened which of course increases the documentary veracity of the movie mm. it looks real because it is real right that poster is one of the most iconic posters ever i, I heard it took forever for free to get that shot right give me the whole history of that poster and that incredible shot which is just so haunting the poster of Father Marin coming in the moonlight and the porch light into the McNeil home was really based on a, a painting by Magret. And it's difficult to set up. A, it's a night shoot. And B, they wanted the light to be coming out of the child's bedroom window. And they wanted everything to work with a certain amount of smoke around. Now, the poster was kind of uh, adapted, shall we say, from an actual shot in the film. Mm. But that's the kind of control that Friedkin wanted. He wanted to be as evocative as possible. And certainly that shot, which to those who knew the original painting would have meant something, but mostly it's a guy stepping out of a cab in a misty night with a little bit of hum in the background. And we know that he's going to have a confrontation with his old enemy, Pazuzu. Let's get to the vulgar stuff. Your mother sucks cocks in hell. Is that in the book? Is that the movie? Who came up with that? Did they know it'd be such an iconic line? Well, you know, the devil is not going to pussyfoot. And what William Friedkin asked William Peter Blatty to do was when they shot that scene to think of the most vile, vulgar, horrible things that you could, you could possibly think of. So it's frankly more of a test for Blatty in his mind than it is for Reagan and hers. But, yeah, they did a lot of it. Now, of course, the interesting part is when Linda Blair said the lines. You know, you're talking about a 12, 13 year old girl saying these lines and it just sounded really, really strange, which is why, of course, when they finished the film, they had Mercedes McCambridge and William Friedkin at times uh, loop the lines and make it sound as horrific as it actually was. As, as Friedkin said, a sound that seems to be torn bloody from the spine. Yeah. And to go back to your point about these, these things actually happening, Dick Smith, who I believe, did some of the special effects on Taxi Driver. Like He was obviously a very well-known guy in the 70s. Like, just just. The idea of like, you know, a woman's head like going all the way around, like just like how inspired were those choices they were making in terms of trying to find what was truly horrific and what would jar audiences 50 years ago? Well, the head revolving is something which remains controversial. I don't happen to like it. Neither did Bill Blatty, because, as he said, improbable does not mean impossible. If Reagan's head had turned around, her spine would have snapped and the movie would have been over a half an hour earlier. Right. <laughs> but they still devised this. And it was Dick Smith using the same 
latex appliques to a model that Marcel Vercoutier had made. And it was, you know, sort of like a puppet. They would be able to turn it around. But it was uh, supposed to be photorealistic. It doesn't work for me. But it does because when the head goes a certain distance, they then cut away to somebody else and then they cut back. So it looks as if it's gone all the way around. Plus, having the hair drape along the collar and a little bit of steam coming out of the mouth also worked. To test it out, of course, Smith and Vercoutier put Reagan in the passenger seat of a car and drove it around lower Manhattan to see if anybody noticed. That was the sort of <laughs> fun they would have when they were making The Exorcist. You got big time actors in this movie, Nat. Ellen Burstyn, who's one of the great actresses of the 70s and obviously loved her later work with movies like Requiem for a Dream. But I mean, how critical was it for Friedkin, the movie's success of an actress like Burstyn, you know, won an Academy Award when Scorsese director Alice doesn't live for anymore the next year. But Burstyn at that time still was a legit great actor here in a, in a genre movie. I happen to think that Ellen Burstyn is the finest actress of her generation in America. There's, there's no question in my mind about that. And she was certainly gracious enough to talk to me about it. But she wasn't a big movie star at the time. I mean, mm. she'd been in a couple of films for Bob Rafelson or Peter Bogdanovich, like Last Picture Show or uh, King of Marvin Gardens. But she hadn't really broken through. And that's what Billy wanted. He didn't want any major movie stars in the film. He wanted the audience to be able to get into who the characters were and not be dissuaded by having, well, Blatty wanted Shirley MacLaine originally, and that would have really put the film off of its kilter. Mm. So uh, Friedkin made the right choice, I think, in making average people. And, of course, Ellen Burstyn was brilliant because she understood what her story was. You know, there's five different stories going on in The Exorcist. Mm -hmm. Ellen Burstyn's story was a mother wants to save her daughter. Right. And she just she nailed it every single scene she was in. How about Max Foncito? Was he clashing with Friedkin on set? How was he behaving himself? He was behaving himself to the extent that he could do the role, but Bax was an atheist, and so he really didn't uh, find playing a priest uh, a particularly something that the, he came out of his character. But he is an actor. Friedkin would direct him using a kind of a musical metaphor, you know, a little uh, adagio, Max, or a little, a little louder, and he would direct him as if he was conducting him because uh, that's what he discovered worked with, with Max. You know, each director has a kind of a therapeutic relationship with an actor and they try to reach that language that the actor best recognizes and with max it was music interesting though an atheist playing a movie in a priest trying to help this woman possessed by this mysterious entity it's crazy the box office the movie now 428 million dollars what would that be adjusted for today's dollars and just how mind-boggling is that a movie that this dark this disturbing made that amount of money at the box office I have no idea what it's worth today by anybody's dollars. I'm sure it's a lot more than that, probably over a billion dollars. But the average ticket price in those days was about two dollars two twenty five. And so you'd have to think of how many people bought tickets and some of them repeated times to see it. Yeah, I think that's part of it, too, is the repeat business, right? Like certain movies become like cult classics, like Rocky Horror Picture Show. But like The Exorcist had the gravitas of being coming from an Academy Award winning filmmaker and freak, but also being something that both critics and audiences love. So how important was repeat business, word of mouth, that kind of stuff to make this really a box office success? The only way to make a blockbuster is repeat business. The repeat business does it. And I think The Exorcist, as well as a lot of other movies, it's kind of strange. First, you'll see the movie and then you'll bring your friends or your girlfriend or boyfriend to see it. And you kind of, you know, see, see what see what their reaction is in the course of the movie. Uh, and that's what makes a great dating picture. Remember, there was a picture called Wait Until Dark that Terrence Young had directed. And uh, it was it has one of the greatest shocks in movie history where somebody jumps out of the shadows. Guys in my college would take their girlfriends to see it, knowing that their girlfriend would wind up in their lap at that moment. And they just prepared <laughs> themselves for it. So I'm sure The Exorcist. 
Unless, of course, somebody barfed on their date. That was a whole different thing. Yeah, I'm sure there's been a vomit was also involved in the way, but that, that's a pretty that's a pretty crafty move there by those boyfriends. You know, it, it, it's also interesting too. Real life exorcism, 1949 in Maryland. That's what inspired this. Give me give me the details of the real life event. I'm skeptical about the veracity of the exorcism or the possession, but there was a boy who was possessed in Cottage City, Maryland, and that town has not often been mentioned. They usually say Mount Rainier, Bethesda, or Silver Spring. Mm -hmm. I'm from Silver Spring, and trust me, I was not possessed. But there was a 14-year-old boy in Cottage City who was supposedly possessed and freed of demonic possession by priests. It was covered for one story in the Washington Post. Now, that it was covered by one story in the Washington Post, which is a good newspaper, shows you how skeptical even the reporters were. If there had been an actual possession, it would have been covered by several subsequent stories. But I think it was what people call the rooster story in journalism. You know, something that's there for, for public information and then isn't followed up on. In fact, the possession did involve a lot of priests, a lot of literature, a lot of moving the kid around. I suspect it was a plot by the church to try to increase their credibility and their power because nothing bears out the veracity of the actual possession. But it was enough to inspire William Peter Blatty, who was an undergraduate at Georgetown University, to think about it years later when he'd given up comedy writing and wanted to write something serious. And that something serious came out in 1971. It was the book, The Exorcist. We're talking with Nat Segaloff right now. A couple more for you, Nat. Since you mentioned the fact you wrote the book Hurricane Billy, the stormy life and films of William Friedkin, I recently rewatched and reviewed Cruising again, which I'd seen years ago. Pacino's my favorite actor, so I just the only thing I knew about it was the fact that it was a film that was not well regarded, one of his bigger bombs. But as you know, over time, people have kind of enjoyed the film more. Tarantino famously has shown it to people and said, listen, there's a lot of greatness in this movie. And I still don't think it's one of Al's best movies, but I do think it's it's a curiosity. There's some unique moments. And what's really fascinating is how much Billy Friedkin hated Al Pacino. There's a great interview online, if you just quick Google, in which, you know what? For those who haven't heard it, it's a quick Google search, but Cody, go ahead and play that sound. Here's William Friedkin on Al Pacino in Cruising. I don't give a flying f into a rolling donut about what Al Pacino thinks. Is that an answer to your question, Greg? Yeah, it's the straightest answer I could... Uh, I, could I mean, I could be sitting here for an hour and try and explain it, but that's a fact. Exactly. I cared a lot, for example, about what Tommy Lee Jones thought, because this guy was a brilliant, professional, prepared actor. Mm -hmm. And he would think about his character more than the director, more than me. He would come to the set with absolutely brilliant ideas. And I don't feel the same about Pacino. Pacino, for his part, has played ball. He's not critical of Friedkin. He just said, I thought the ending didn't make any sense. It was kind of confusing. But what can you tell me about Cruising and Pacino and Friedkin specifically? I think the person who's probably most fascinated with Cruising is James Franco, mm. who made his own movie about the supposedly cut scenes from Cruising. I covered it extensively in the, uh, in the biography of William Friedkin in Hurricane Billy. And also, I was there uh, in, uh, in, in Boston when he came and did a whole big a demonstration about how the film worked uh, it, it billy likes indefinite endings you know whether it's the french connection or sorcerer and certainly cruising kind of folds in on itself at the end but it's really a story about a man who's trying to explore himself and the things that come with it i think can be seen if you watch the film over again depending which cut you get but i will tell you something i haven't told anybody else and that is a couple of years ago i was in a restaurant in los angeles uh with some other people and billy was there with his wife sherry 
and they were also with um, uh, Peter Bart and his wife. Peter Bart was the former editor of Variety. Right. And so, you know, we, we stopped over to say hello and he had a, a bit of a conversation. The next table over was Al Pacino. Billy was seated facing away from Al. I didn't know Pacino, so I couldn't go over and say hello. But it would have been interesting if they turned around and faced each other. I'll leave it to you to see what might have happened. Okay, well, then, story, in your discussions story. with Billy, do you think he's fair to criticize Pacino? Like, if you're objectively looking at it, what, what was Friedkin's issue with him? I don't know, because he never criticized him when I talked to him. Mm. You know, Billy also had the same thing to say about Oliver Stone. They were talking about digital photography versus photochemical photography. Billy is a very opinionated man, and he enjoys giving his opinions. Uh, they happen to be right most of the time, by the way. Yeah, he's definitely a great director. I'm just surprised how uh, how blunt he was. And by the way, he has also said he thinks Pacino is good in the movie. Like he said, listen, I, when I watched, I do think he's a good actor. I just I don't care for him. I don't want to work with him. I never want to see him again. It's too bad they could have could, could have at least looked at each other and made eye contact. Um, once again, I can check out the book and The Exorcist Legacy, which is coming out uh, July 25th. Uh, you've had a rich legacy here, Nat, all over the place. I mean, you've covered film industry, the Boston Herald, uh, working the biography series, the Learning Channel, New World, Disney, Turner Classic Movies, USA Network. So. I'm sure you're as um, concerned as I am with this actor strike. I saw Brian Cox saying this might go to the end of the year. What are your thoughts on it? How depressed are you about it as I am? I'm depressed about it because a lot of my friends are out of work, including, by the way, me, because I'm in the Writers Guild and I'm in AFTRA. Um, but you got to understand something. I mean, imagine if you wrote a book and they said, thank you very much. And they gave you your advance and then they didn't pay you any royalties. Yeah. I mean, if, for example, you're on a podcast, if they didn't give you any money every time somebody saw it, you know, it, it, you've earned it. That was part of the deal. That's what the actors are going for now. The whole business model has changed. That doesn't mean it's better. If musicians and composers and lyricists can get paid by ASCAP and BMI, why can't actors get paid on a pay-per-showing basis? It's simply that the, the big streaming companies in particular know damn well how many people are watching their movies. Just because their business model doesn't permit them to tell it to anybody else is bullshit. Yeah. So I think it's going to be a huge, huge thing. I think Congress may get involved at some point to break up the communications conglomerates. They're scared of them right now, which is another good reason to break them up. But also the CEOs, and not just David Zaslav of Warner Brothers Discovery, but the CEOs have acquired and merged to the extent that they're carrying such huge debts that their cash flow cannot possibly pay back. So, of course, they're going to break up the circus. It's very, very bad management, even regardless regardless of the strike and the stockholders should do something about that couldn't agree more my friend i uh, i hope things get resolved sooner rather than later but i think it could be bleak for a little while the good news is you've got great books to read from nat segaloff <laughs> including the exorcist legacy and of course you can watch the movie over and over again and all the different incarnations of it nat this was fascinating uh, you're obviously a very good guy very entertaining uh best of luck to you in your career love the dog and uh i look forward to watching the exorcist again <laughs> Thank you both. And Chris, sometime I want to hear from you too. <laughs> and, and and give my best to Laura, who's been an absolute champ in getting this thing worked out. Oh, we love Laura. No question. Good, you should. See you next time. Thanks, Thanks for us, Nat. Take care. I appreciate it. Bye bye. These guys are great, Louie. <laughs> Oops. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. All right, thanks once again to Nat. A couple of old movies here for you. First one is My Own Private Idaho from 1991. Great title. I've always thought that was a great title. Never seen the movie. My buddy LaBoy's got the DVD. Let me watch it. Gus Van Sant, writer-director. He's some of the people really like. You know, I like some of his work. Milk is obviously features a great Sean Penn performance. He won Best Actor. To Die For certainly has its merits. Uh, but at times, I find his work very self-indulgent. You know, I've often said Psycho is like one of the worst movies I've ever seen. The fact that he made a remake of one of the greatest movies ever, and then it was a shot-for-shot remake. I have nothing against remakes. You know, when I was in Seattle, I watched The Departed the other day. It was on the TV. I'm like, oh, of course, Scorsese's remake of an Asian film. So, uh, Spike Lee remade Old Boy, which Chris enjoyed the remake. I haven't seen it, but I enjoyed the original more. But <laughs> there's nothing necessarily wrong with remakes. But I never understood the point of making a remake and then shot for shot. What the hell is the point of that? And I remember watching Van Sant Psycho, Vince Vaughn. There's one scene like he's like jerking off, looking at the girl. I'm like, this is just disgusting. And now, <laughs> as I've complained about before, I believe Robert Downey Jr. is going to do a Vertigo remake, which is just another horrific idea. Long way of saying Van Sant certainly has his supporters, and I think he's an excellent director, but haven't always loved his work. This time, though, he really went for it. And this was an early film for him, which I'd never seen. Finally got around to watching. The synopsis is this. Two best friends living on the streets of Portland as hustlers embark on a journey of self-discovery and find the relationship stumbling along the way. I think it really is a movie that was of its time and is very dated now. But I think if you watch it in 1991, you can appreciate the story about gay hustlers and identity. And he's really trying to cram in a lot of Shakespeare. The writers on the, on the movie, it's credited as Gus Van Sant plus William Shakespeare because he's using Shakespeare and I believe Henry IV specifically as a template. So it's definitely an ambitious movie. I don't think it always works. He takes some chances. There's one scene where, again, Phoenix and, and Keanu Reeves are gay hustlers. They're just you know blowing these guys. I mean, one of the first scenes where Phoenix is with some guy and then you know the guy's blowing him actually. And then he asked him for some more money and he's like, you know, just give me 10. He's like, okay, fine. Later on, he goes like in this, you know, porn shop and it's like, Keanu Reeves is on the cover of one of the adult gay magazines and he starts like talking to him. So it's like one of those movies where like, you know, he wants to take some chances visually, be a little goofy, some dreamlike sequences. You're not sure what's real, what's not drug use, et cetera. 
But I, I thought the movie was very dated. I don't think it necessarily worked. But I did enjoy the performances, especially Keanu Reeves, who's become such a, an incredible action star. I mean, this was long before Speed and long before John Wick. But it's interesting to see him in one of these early movies where he was kind of testing himself as a thespian. And really a reminder what a great actor River Phoenix was. I mean, Running on Empty is such a wonderful film. 1987, 1988, you know, tragically he died. Uh, drug overdose and you know now Joaquin Phoenix much more well known than River but back then everyone knew who River Phoenix was late 80s early 90s very handsome very talented took risks and uh, this is really a, kind of a testament to his acting at the very least Kerry Ricky of Philadelphia Inquirer although River Phoenix has distinguished himself as an actor ever since his second film Stand By Me of course Stand By Me is great nothing he's ever done before prepares you for his performance in private Idaho as a motherless homeless loveless piece of human driftwood it is true. If there's a, if the reason to watch the movie, you watch it for Phoenix's performance, even if I felt, as I said, it's a little bit dated. Michael Upchurch of Seattle Times, one of the most original cinematic talents at work in this country. Van Sant has a knack for pulling disparate elements together and twisting them into wildly funny, lyrical odysseys of the mind and heart. Okay, that's going a little bit far. Bo Travis, the other movie, an ex-Foreign Legion officer recalls his once glorious life of leading troops in Jubilee. It's from Claire Denis, who's a very well-respected director. She wrote it and directed it. French film. Didn't always work for me. I found it a little bit aimless, but I did appreciate how atmospheric it was and how movies like this generally appreciate tone uh, above the written word. You know, this is not a story being propelled by dialogue or by plot. It's really being motivated by action and the sequences around it. And I think to me, more than anything, it was a curiosity. And I appreciate whenever you're making these types of films, you know, you're kind of being more expressive. It's very, very poetic. Chris Wagner of Dallas Morning News says, as much poem as film, it requires patience, which it rewards at every languid turn. Again, it's not particularly a long movie. It's only 93 minutes, but I, I did find my patience tested by it, which is why I'll give my own private Idaho two Maple Leafs. I'll give Bo Trevi two and a half Maple Leafs. Ed Gonzalez of Slant Magazine. Bo Trevi is an allegorical tale of revenge and jealousy set within a French foreign legion outpost in Africa. And Jonathan Rosenbaum, a Chicago reader, a masterpiece. I didn't quite see it that way, but I'm curious to see some of the DVD extras, including the great Barry Jenkins, my buddy who directed Moonlight. He actually interviews Claire Denis on the DVD since he's a real fan of Bo Trevise. So I'm curious to watch that interview. It's one of the reasons why people say, why do you watch DVDs? Because of the extras. You know, back in the day, you'd watch director commentary. You'd see the interviews with the actors. It was always something fun to see. So at the very least, I will enjoy seeing the Bo Trevise DVD, which I will uh, explore later today. Once again, thanks to Nat Segalop. Go check out The Exorcist Legacy. Let's all hope this actor strike goes... Uh, Whew. Let's hope it goes quicker. Let's go. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's hope it's over sooner rather than later because it could be bleak right now, not only for actors and for writers, but also for cinephile. But we'll keep churning out content once again. We'll do new movies, old movies. I'll still keep popping up with Samson and the Dan Lebitard show. And once again, next week might be one of our biggest episodes of the year, Cody. We've got Barbie and we've got Oppenheimer. Look forward to that coming up. And until then, I'll see you at the movies.